The CDC has been recommending unequivocally that all American adults, please, please, please get your flu shot for 10 years. And even at our high watermark, we were less than 50%. Now, if we do that with the coronavirus vaccine, there's no way that we will ever achieve herd immunity. From Politico, this is Women Rule, where we bring you real talk with women bosses. I'm Anna Palmer, senior Washington correspondent and co-author of the Politico Playbook. And that's Angela Duckworth, a professor of psychology at Penn and past recipient of the MacArthur Genius Grant. She joined me to talk about the pandemic and the unseen psychological reasons that explain why we act the way we do. One of the real challenges from a behavioral science standpoint is that very early on in the pandemic, you know, the recommendation was the wrong one, which is that, like, please don't wear masks. But of course, that's entirely untrue. We should have all been wearing masks. And when human beings get message A, and then a month later you say, oh, just kidding, I meant the opposite of A, it's really hard. Angela's known for her research on grit and self-control, both of which are important characteristics to have when you're living through times like these. She's aware that we're all struggling with those traits right now. And she knows that understanding that, as well as having the self-control to extend empathy to those who, for instance, ignore expert advice in the middle of a global pandemic, will make life a little bit easier for everyone. We need to like create a narrative where people can change their behavior and not look stupid, not look hypocritical. You can't, you know, humiliate people into behavior change. And now, here's my conversation with Angela Duckworth. Angela, thank you so much for joining us. Um, For those of our listeners who aren't familiar with your work and kind of who you are, can you give us a quick download on what it is that you do? I am a psychologist who studies achievement. I've been trying to understand, in particular, the motivational dimensions of high achievement, asking the question, what do you need to succeed beyond some, you know, threshold level of like, oh, I'm doing okay. So I study in particular grit, which is long-term passion and perseverance. But I also study delayed gratification and self-control, which is what we need to deal with the hourly demons of, you know, Netflix binging and junk food, etc. We're holding this conversation over Zoom because of, we're in the middle of a pandemic. But you and a few of your colleagues wrote an opinion article in the New York Times in March about the three things we need to do to get people to wear masks. What were those? Did it end up happening? <laughs> were, were, were you successful in your mission? I'm not sure that our op-ed has, um, you know, changed uh, behavior of American adults the way we hoped. I'll tell you what motivated this op-ed, which is how to use behavioral science to increase compliance with public health recommendations that long preceded our op-ed that said, hey, Americans, please wear a mask in public. And I was looking around and seeing in my, you know, in my city of Philadelphia that there there are plenty of American adults who are not complying with this incredibly low tech and straightforward uh, recommendation. So, so, so that was the inspiration. Like, oh, maybe, maybe what we're in need of uh, as a nation is is some behavioral science to get people to change their habits. The idea that I had that preceded writing this op-ed was that, you know, masks should be everywhere. I mean, at the time that we wrote this op-ed also, you know, Amazon didn't have any in stock. Like you couldn't buy one from Old Navy. Like it was really, really hard. Now things are, you know, manufacturing has kind of caught up a little bit. But um, I think what your example points to is that that's, you know, incomplete. Unfortunately, like pretty much everything else in this country, mask wearing has become deeply politicized. 
how how it is that America managed to politicize a, a like a fundamental public health behavior is a little bit beyond me. But but I do think on balance, all things being equal, and I applaud this, you know citizen who was giving out masks, I still think that making it easier is better. So, you know, many large um, retailers, for example, do offer masks when you enter. And and honestly, that is better than not offering them, I think. Public transportation, at least in my home city, can't afford it, right? Unfortunately, uh, like if you're on a subway or a bus, one of the easiest places to transmit this virus, which is a respiratory virus that's easy to get in an enclosed closed space where the air is circulating and you're close to other people. The public transportation authorities in Philadelphia anyway are, you know, if anything, they have much less money than they had a year ago because they have lower ridership. So I still think it's a good idea, but it's not a panacea. So there were other points in the in the op-ed. You know, one was that you have to make it, you know, clear to everyone that it's an essential behavior. Um, and I think one of the real challenges from a behavioral science standpoint is that very early on in the pandemic, you know, the recommendation was the wrong one, which is that like, please don't wear masks and don't buy them and don't hoard them. I think looking back, of course, the reason why these uh, health officials were saying that is that, you know, they were sensitive to frontline healthcare workers not being able to have surgical uh, masks because, you know, everybody had bought them up. But of course, that's entirely untrue. We should have all been wearing masks. And when human beings get message A, and then a month later, you say, oh, just kidding. I meant the opposite of A. It's really hard, actually, to displace that you know original idea, especially when not wearing masks is a whole lot more comfortable than wearing a mask. But where do you come down on, you know, kind of as a behavior scientist, the concept of peer pressure and how much that actually maybe informs people to wear masks more than what the leadership is saying in Washington when everybody hates Washington anyway? Yeah, so you're you're pointing to something really important, which is that um, peer pressure isn't exactly the same thing as role modeling from from a leader. I think they're related. It's obviously true that prominent people that you follow and you are loyal to are going to influence your behavior. And at the same time, you know, we look to our friends and our neighbors, and we just look around. You know, like what are the people immediately around us doing? And it's a basic human intuition, without even reflection, without even conscious awareness, to kind of like fall in with the group. And, you know, if you can just imagine yourself getting off the plane in Hong Kong, where mass compliance has been like basically 100% since the very, very, very beginning, you would feel this like compulsion to just do what everyone else is doing. Um, I think here, um, the, the question of peers is difficult because we don't yet have a strong social norm. In fact, we have a divided country where some of us are feeling very strongly about mask wearing and other public health behaviors. Others feel just as strongly in the opposite direction. And I think that essentially sets up this dynamic. You know, I was on vacation a few weeks ago um, with my family and my mother-in-law was sitting in the lobby of her hotel. She's, you know, in her 70s. She was, uh, you know, she has a walker and she's wearing a mask. You know, she's pretty much the demographic of the sort of person who should be very careful. And she's just sitting there minding her own business and a complete stranger um, comes up to her, uh, I guess somebody else who's staying in the hotel and says, "What what are you wearing a mask for? What are you doing? What are you afraid of? And she said, 
I'm afraid of dying. <laughs> so, so you know, where does this anger come from? Obviously, this guy has a very different uh, idea of what's normal, what's expected. And my guess is that he has peers who are reinforcing his worldview, whereas my mother-in-law has a very different set of peers, including me, <laughs> who are, who are um, you know, uh, supporting a different norm. So, so we have, you know, two sets of norms in the country that are um, arguing in the opposite direction. And, and how do you predict what side wins? <laughs> Here's what I think. For the, for the mask wearing issue and maybe for some other, you know, divisive political issues, the intuitive reaction is to, like, be angry about about how the other people, you know, when I walk by somebody and they, they like, literally brush my shoulder because they're just, like, not worried about being six feet apart and they're not wearing a mask and sometimes like literally spitting. I've been watching people like spit in the street. I'm like, hello, we're in a global pandemic. Please don't spit in the street no. when there are a lot of no. other people around. I, this is me when I'm running to the other side and like yeah. trying to get away from people. I mean, right? Like, so here was my unpopular suggestion. My in instinctive reaction is to like throw that person shade, right? To like look at them with like, my, you know, my, my like best disgust face and, um, and, and to like hope that that's going to change their behavior. Right. And a lot of people, you know, for example, I'm not a big fan of our president and, you know, I have lots of negative feelings, but I wonder whether that, you know, like I'm going to shame you. I'm going to express my anger and, um, my, you know, this feeling of condemnation. In my experience as a behavioral scientist, you know, there are in most cases like no reasons to believe that that kind of behavior is going to actually make the other person say, you know what? You're so right. I'm going to run <laughs> home and get my mask. I'm really sorry. Really what the other person can do is be defensive and angry. And they're going to come up with a narrative in their head that makes you look like just as much of an idiot and an insensitive person. So I wonder whether inclusive of our president who doesn't, you know, usually wear a mask, we need to like create a narrative where people can change their behavior and not look stupid, not look hypocritical. So my suggestion in the op-ed was to use language like this. You know, we couldn't have known in even June or July how important mask wearing is. But now new research or like, you know, now we know. Now I looked in the comments to the op-ed and they're like, that's ridiculous. We've known forever. Like, look at this article. I'm like, I know, I know. But, but you can't, you know, humiliate people into behavior change. Yeah, no, it's a good point. I think the, the, yeah, the concept of being angry at somebody and yelling at them, thinking that they're going to be like, oh, you're right, actually. Now I will wear a mask <laughs> yeah. is, is probably, you know. When has not, that ever happened, right? In, in like, life, I mean, right? And, and I don't care yeah. what part of it is. Um, right. All right, well, I want to take a step back. Um, tell us a little bit about where you grew up, um, your family. Uh, give us kind of the backstory a little bit. Yeah, I am a Chinese by ethnic heritage. My parents immigrated from China, both of them, to the Philadelphia area. Um, and that was, you know, in their 20s. And um, I was born, therefore, in Philadelphia, grew up in the suburbs, Cherry Hill, which is exit four for um, those listeners who know the New Jersey Turnpike. Went to public schools my whole life. Um, and then, um, you know, when I got to college, I uh, thought I was going to be pre-med very briefly, probably because my parents wanted my dad, especially 
especially wanted me to. I got really into education. I really, um, you know, at some point during my college career, I, I think I literally thought in a very like top down logical way because I was doing a lot of volunteering um, and, you know, I was working, uh, you know, at a nursing home, but I was also like tutoring. And so and it just made logical sense to me that if you want to make change in society, that you should start like at, at the earliest, you know, part of the pipeline, right? Like kids, like kids are the future. And so um, that got me into education. I taught for a while. Um, and that got me interested in all the parts of my, you know, as a teacher, I was like, good at some things, less good at others. And I felt like the thing that I really got frustrated about in terms of my own inadequacy was motivating kids and motivating them to sustain effort on difficult tasks. And that kind of led to me being a psychologist who studies effort and, you know, achievement and grit and self-control. Yeah, so to talk a little bit, I mean, I watched you had a TED Talk, which was very successful around kind of grit and this concept. And it's something it's, it's, it's super interesting to me because I feel like I've had this conversation a zillion times with my siblings and my parents around, you know, I'm, I'm from a really small town in North Dakota. And like what what produced all of these people who got out of, you know, just choose to leave, choose to leave and live in big cities and, you know, we're at least professionally pretty successful. Like, is it like you're the smartest in the room? Like, I don't probably think so. Right. Was Did you have the thing that kind of I don't that, that intangible quality, which is really what you talk a lot about, that kind of grit mentality of just like I'm going to grind it out and, and, and do it as, you know, work harder, work stronger, work longer to get it done. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's not that I don't believe that there are differences in ability, right? Like, it's not that I think like, oh, we're all equally talented. It doesn't, you know, anybody could have been Michael Jordan, right? Like, it's not that I believe that. It's that I believe that, you know, your rate at which you get better at things, which is how I define talent, right? Like, if you're high talent, then like the rate at which you improve is quite high, which, by the way, I'm I'm watching The Last Dance. So I'll just use Michael Jordan. <laughs> I've as already a- watched all of it. It's very good. Oh, yes. my gosh, it's so good. I'm having difficulty getting any work done because I just want to watch, watch the next, next yeah. one. Yes. <laughs> I think I'm like one of the few Americans who hasn't watched the whole thing and so far. But like, obviously he was high ability, right? One one of the, um, uh, you know, players who uh, like practiced with him was like, yeah, I was better than him for two weeks, right? And then he like, so, so obviously Michael Jordan's rate of change in his basketball skill was super high. So so that's ability. But if any of us remember back to high school physics, right? When you're like, how far is this car going to go? You know, speed is one thing, but how long the car is going is another, right? And if you want a car to go a really long distance, it has to be a fast car, but it has to be a fast car that stays on the path for a long time. I mean, it's the moral of the tortoise and the hare, right? And and I think that idea, that motivation and sticking with something, and, and honestly, if I think about my own, um, you know, intellect. I mean, I'm not the smartest person. I don't think I was the smartest person in my elementary school, but there is a kind of obsessiveness. Like I think about things like that I have been thinking about for, you know, 15 or more years. And I think about them seven days a week. And I think about them in the morning. I think about them in the afternoon. I think about them when I'm brushing my teeth and going to bed. And if you think about the, you know, the cumulative time on task of somebody who does something for years and is doing it consistently without taking like three month breaks and doing it seven days a week, like that is something different from your talent. And that's, you know, what I'm after is trying to understand, you know, then like, why do people do that? And why do some people choose not to do that? So I wanted to talk to you because I thought it was such an interesting time to really think about what you study in comparison to what parents are dealing with their children and school and the concept of reopening, right? And this kind of very big push-pull of, 
you know, we need to get things open because we need to kind of have normalcy. But also I think there's this real parental pressure of like, are my kids going to be screwed because, you know, they aren't going to be in the classroom. And so how do you kind of break that down? Do you think it matters or does it? There are no easy answers. I mean, really, there are no easy answers. I mean, God, I wish it were like a soundbite. But um, let me begin by saying that, you know, I'm a parent. I have a 17 and an 18 year old. So they finished high school. You know, they missed their junior and senior proms. But that wasn't that wasn't tragic, honestly. Um, uh, You know, so the older one is a college freshman next year. The younger one is starting her senior year. By the way, parents of younger kids, oh my, God bless you. Like two-year-olds, five-year-olds, seven-year-olds. I mean, that's a whole nother world of pain. But the reason I say there's no easy answers is that, um, okay, first, let's start with the fact that uh, the uh, lack of instructional time, right? Like human skill development is very simple. You, you're you you're doing it and you're getting better or at least maintaining skill or you're not doing it and it gets worse. I mean, just just without uh, any, you know, fancy research studies, you can, you can say definitively if a kid's not doing math, for example, guess what? They're going to get worse at doing right. math and they're certainly not going to get better. So that's fact number one. Fact number two is um, there's a huge an avalanche of data, uh, you know, confirming what our intuitions were at the beginning of the pandemic, which is that the pandemic is going to be much, much worse for the least served kids. So it is the low-income children who need the most support, who in fact are hurting the most in the pandemic. So that's fact number two. Fact number three is we are in the middle of a health crisis, and it's not clear what the pros and cons are, given the locality and the infection rate and the facilities, et cetera. You know, you know, what the ramifications are of going back in person. Um, and I think all of that, you know, has to be layered onto like the economic picture, right? For the, for a lot of very privileged people of, of whom, I mean, I have to count myself, right? It's like, I'm not making trade-offs between like my professional success and my kids going back to school. Like it's not an either or for me. It is an either or for a lot of Americans. So, that's why there are no easy answers. I I would say that um you know you know we should um I think seed the complex and weighty decision more to local decision makers. So I disagreed with the president and the you know secretary of education sort of you know trying to mandate a federal policy because you know you know if you're in Orlando, Florida versus like Las Vegas, Nevada versus like a small town in Maine like you know your infection rates are different, you know your facilities are different, your achievement gap is different, your technology resources are different and so it's not easy and it's not simple and I don't think there are any perfect answers but I think the local decision makers will, will come to better decisions than you know top-down federal authorities. Talk. I, I think one of the things that we've really recognized over the last several weeks is this kind of push to reopen, right? And I'd be really interested in like the 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 the, the psychological drivers that are really pushing us to reopen versus maybe whether the, the facts are saying we should reopen. How do how do you kind of see that? So, you know, reopening versus not reopening is um, the reason why there's so much debate is that it's not a 
cl- it's not a clear cut issue in the sense that there are only pros on one side and only cons on the other, right? So you know, in understanding um, this division in the country between those who feel like we're being too sluggish on the reopening, too cautious, and those who are like, "Are you crazy? Like <laughs> you lost your mind? We can't reopen." So these two poles of opinion are, I think, fixating on different elements that are either on the pro side or on the con side. But but it's it's not that people are completely delusional. It's just that like what they what they are paying attention to and what matters to them is like it looms large. Mm-hmm. And then the other things are like small for them. And that's how we can just be at an impasse. Right. So in terms of the people who really want to uh, reopen, my guess is that a lot of them are, you know, small business owners or, you know, people for whom they feel like, you know, like they look at the risks of um, of in, in themselves getting infected even. Right. Like themselves, you know, being, uh, you know, positive for COVID and thing like, oh, you know, I'm willing to accept that right and and like that's small to me relative to like you know not having a business in in six months um but but i think that's that's to me i'm not going to say like you know whether we should or shouldn't i'm like probably the last person anybody should really listen to when it comes to public policy because i don't i'm like deeply ignorant um about all the complexity that decision makers have to like grapple with but i do think as a psychologist i can understand at least why people can be on opposite sides of this issue um but not either side having you know um uh, a kind of like hallucinatory thing. It's just it's just that what they care about and what they're paying attention to is ex- is exaggerated relative to the other things. So you've studied, you know, all kinds of different grit in a lot of different um, mediums, whether it's cadets or in schools or in professions. Does this pandemic, is it an opportunity for you? Are you thinking or are you or have you already started about kind of thinking about what's the next turn of the screw? Well, when I think about my research program, I, you know, grit is this, um, you know, signature characteristic of like super high achievers, right? Like, you know, the, the really obsessive artists and musicians and entrepreneurs who, who, you know, make a difference. And not, not to say that, you know, all of us couldn't be somewhere, you know, on the spectrum of grit, but, but I think, um, of my other research, which is maybe more relevant to the pandemic, um, these days, which is, you know, self-control. So, so self-control isn't just, you know, something that you need to be like a super high achiever, right? Self-control, you need so that, you know, you take your heart medication. Um, it's self-control you need so that you can, like, turn in your taxes instead of procrastinate. You know, self-control you need so that you would, like, you know, get off the couch and try to get, you know, a few steps in as opposed to sitting on the couch. So, in the pandemic, I think all of us are struggling, frankly, with self-control um, for lots of reasons. But one of them is that when you are in a state of like irritability, which I think literally every human being that I've you know uh, been around is like, yeah, I am more irritable than I was in February. Um, <laughs> when your sleep is disrupted, when you're eating too much or too little, um, and when you're dealing with a lot of stressors that are essentially like activating your fight or flight response, like your threat system, which is, by the way, probably partly why we're irritable. Like those are all factors that diminish your ability to make wise choices when you're confronted with this decision between something that feels good right away and something that's better for you even five minutes from now. And that's the heart of self-control that human beings, unlike most animals, are able to consciously make a decision between like, oh, this feels good right away. Oh, and this is going to feel good in five minutes or 10 years. And that is a real challenge during the pandemic. 
So are you are you looking into that as kind of a broader kind of studying it? I mean, to me, that a lot of what you're talking about is kind of like uncertainty, right? So I agree with you. People are much more irritable, right? I mean, if you look at the right track, wrong track of this country, everyone thinks we're in the wrong track. I don't care if you are conservative <laughs> yeah. or you're liberal. Everyone's unhappy. It's, I mean, it's, no one is happy in this entire country right now. It's no actually pretty happy. stunning. But to me, one of the things that is really interesting is this concept of uncertainty, right? About what the future holds, whether that's five minutes from now or professionally. Um, how do you think, is there any advice, not that, you know, you're in the advice business, but that, you know, how people can maybe navigate that better? We're all experiencing um, this challenge. And one of the reasons why children and adults um, struggle to delay gratification is that um, when you have an immediate reward, right? Like, oh, I can watch The Last Dance on Netflix by just pushing this one button. Or frankly, now just like not pushing the, the cancel button. Like the next. <laughs> yes, like, I'm next, still watching yeah. it. Why are you shaming me? <laughs> yes. Well, that was very wise behavior. I mean, clever anyway of Netflix. Like when Netflix figured out that it would just like automatically play the next like that was very behaviorally clever. I don't know if it was wise, but it was clever. Anyway, um, that is certain, right? I know exactly what I'm going to get, right? Or if I say, like, I'm going to have a Snickers bar. Like, I, it's certain, right? But if I say, like, you know, I'm going to do this other good for me behavior, like I'm going to, you know, work out today, or I'm going to wear a mask today, or I'm going to try to stay six feet apart, or I'm going to, like, not go see my, you know, grandmother, because those are all to some extent, less certain, right? Like, probably that's good, but you can't be 100% sure and it's not as crystal clear and salient and kind of and, and immediate, right? Those things kind of basically go together. So I think in the pandemic, so many of the things that we're being asked to do or ought to do are like, say, for example, you are, let's just focus on the economic part of the pandemic. Like, say you're, um, you know, out of work and you think you should try, like, try to, like, apply for jobs because, like, maybe you could get one and also, maybe the economy will hold up enough for you to actually keep working at it. I mean, those things are all in the future to some degree uncertain. And frankly, for a lot of these questions, when you really start to think about them, a lot uncertain. And human beings are not very good at choosing to delay gratification for the sake of far removed, uncertain rewards. Um, and that's one of the challenges. So yeah, I've been thinking about it a lot, not so I can run like clever experiments, um, but frankly, so that we can actually do something. I mean, one of the things I, I'm working on uh, with a bunch of other scientists is um, vaccination behavior. So um, we are all, of course, hoping that one of these vaccines in development that we, you know, like eagerly read the newspaper to see if there's an advance on. Um, one thing I worry about as a behavioral scientist, um, as do many other behavioral scientists, is in this country, historically, we have not gotten our flu shots uh, when we are supposed to. The CDC has been recommending unequivocally that all American adults, please, please, please get your flu shot for 10 years. And um, even at our high watermark, we were less than 50% in terms of American adults. get. Now, if we do that with the coronavirus vaccine, there's no way that we will ever achieve herd immunity. Right. So, you know, as a behavioral scientist, I'm thinking like, oh, we're not so great at delaying gratification in general. It's really hard to change behavior. Like, what can we do as behavioral scientists to change uh, vaccination behavior in the United States? 
many, many people intend to do things that they don't do, even things that are really urgent. So for example, if you look at heart medication, you know, people who have had a heart attack, for example, can be prescribed in many, many cases, heart medication that will almost certainly save their life. And the medication has very few side effects. And for many of these adults that I'm talking about is free because it's covered by their health care. But it is shocking the lack of adherence. And it, like, you know, I think the statistic is like more people are um, like consistently give their dog their like ringworm medication than like take their heart medication that that will save their life. So it's not just ideology. There's something, um, you know, about these like daily behavioral challenges uh, that that are it's really, really hard for human beings to do things that are good for them in the long run, but not immediately gratifying. Um, and, you know, we, we talked about that and there's even more reasons than but maybe that is another podcast interview. <laughs> I know. We'll have you back. Well, we are quickly running out of time. But I do want to ask you one of the things I've been asking everybody, because it's something that's been on my mind um, since this pandemic has started, is what is one thing, one behavior that you will continue to do after the, the pandemic? And what is one thing that you're, you know, that, that maybe you you, the, you can't wait to change, you know, go to see friends or whatever. But what's right, the, go back to the way it was. Yes, yeah. exactly. Oh, well, let me start with what I will. I'm going to get my hair cut like, you know, more than <laughs> once every eight months, like after the pandemic. In terms of things that I will keep doing, I mean, this reminds me of there's a famous study of the London Tube. There was like a two day strike some years ago at, at the London Tube. And part of the London Tube was, you know, shut down. And so all these Londoners who relied on the tube to get to work had to take new and less efficient routes in most cases, right? So now you had to make, you know, three transitions. Or, but guess what? About 5%, I think, of these Londoners actually discovered a route that was just better. Like, I don't know, they just had gotten into a habit of taking one. They were like, oh my gosh, I could take this route. And it's like, whatever. So, and those Londoners just stuck with the new habit. So I think you're asking me kind of like, what what will be our equivalent yes. in the pandemic? One thing I have really enjoyed in the pandemic is that because we're all cooped up and, um, you know, mostly sheltering in place. My husband and I, in order to get even like close to 10,000 steps, take a walk after dinner. Um, and uh, we are masked, by the way, when we do this. And, you know, we never did that before. Like who would take a walk with their spouse? And, and I hope we can keep that up. I love that. All right. Well, Angela, thank you so much. I really appreciate your time today. And uh, we may have to have you back on soon to discuss many of the other things that I could have talked about for the entire <laughs> time. But we really appreciate your uh, generosity with the time. Thank you. I'd love to be back. Women Rule is produced by Zach Stanton. Irene Noguchi is the executive producer of Politico Audio. If you're a fan of the show, please subscribe to Women Rule on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Rate us and leave a review. Please share our episodes on social media and follow me on Twitter and Instagram at apalmerdc. You can also join the Women Rule community by texting WOMEN to 66866.